0: This episode of the Single Tracks Podcast is sponsored by ExploreBrevard.com. Picture yourself in the middle of 100,000 acres of public lands and over 300 shreddable miles of single track. A place often referred to as one of the top mountain biking towns in the country, Brevard, North Carolina, has countless epic adventures for every kind of rider on tap. Whether you love rocky, ruddy, technical lines in Pisgah, or flowy lines in DuPont State Recreational Forest, or something in between, Brevard has it all in spades. Come discover the place often referred to as the cycling capital of the South. Start planning your trip today at explorebrevard.com. Hey everybody, welcome to the Single Tracks Podcast. My name is Jeff and today my guest is Ashley Korenblatt. Ashley is the CEO of Western Spirit Cycling Adventures and founder of Outerbike, as well as the Managing Director of Public Land Solutions, a nonprofit dedicated to providing comprehensive recreation planning and stakeholder coordination to support effective and sustainable public land solutions. She also previously served as an Imba board chair. Thank you for joining us, Ashley.
1: Yeah, happy to be here.
0: So how did the public land solutions get its start?
1: So um, I after I served as Imba's chair, I went back as staff to work on 30 different public lands bills that included wilderness designations. Mm. And um, I learned a lot in that couple of years of, of working on all of these different public land issues. And what I realized is that there wasn't anybody working on the public land story from the community perspective. And I, uh, the, I founded public land solutions with a guy named Jason Keith, who's the attorney for the access fund. So he's, he's the lawyer and I'm the entrepreneur on the team. And, um, but what we realized is there are all these user groups that are advocating for their use and then their conservation groups advocating for conservation. Mm-hmm. And then there's industry groups, the oil and gas industry group and the recreation industry group and the coal industry group. But there wasn't really anybody looking at it from the community perspective. Hmm. And what's happening right now is so many communities are changing. They're pivoting away from oil and gas and coal and looking to get involved in the recreation economy um, for both tourism and recruiting quality of life people who want to live in a place where there's access to the out of doors. Mm-hmm. It turns out there was a real need to have a nonprofit that was working at it, um, working on public lands from the community perspective. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, Jason and I make a great team because I'll, <laughs> I'll be like, that sounds great. We should support it. And he says, we should read it first. Like, oh, <laughs> good idea. So it's been, and we've gotten, uh, we have, um, some foundation funding from foundations that are working on climate and transitions. Mm-hmm. And then we also get hired directly by the communities to help them with their recreation economy.
0: Interesting. And I mean, are there communities though, that, that maybe they side more with the uh, resource companies in some situations, like if it's in their economic interest or like, would you even get involved in that situation? Or are you more focused on the communities that want recreation and, and that sort of land use.
1: Right. Well we have to be invited. We don't just march in and tell them what to do. Right. So we we have to get hired by them. So we are but right now we're working in a bunch of communities that are on the track to make these transitions. And the way resource extraction works is it's a boom at the beginning. Like every every oil well Produces pretty well when it first gets drilled, mm-hmm. and then over time you suck all the oil out of that place, and the and the and the well pad is lower and lower performing, and um, so a lot of a lot of bad things happen towards the end of a well pad's life.
2: Yeah,
1: <laughs> and this and the same thing for a coal fired power plant. You know these coal-fired power plants were really doing the job for the last whatever fifty, sixty, eighty years, and now they're not. Hmm. I mean, there's a lot of them on track to close. So it's really this pivotal moment in the community's history when they realize we got to start planning something new.
2: Hmm. Yeah,
1: and that's that's where we get involved. So places like the Permian and the Bakken in South Dakota and southern New Mexico, those are still high producing oil fields mm-hmm. so i'm not really expecting to get a call from them anytime soon but <laughs> but in the bakken in north dakota they already have a trail that connects the two units of the theodore roosevelt national park the modahay trail mm-hmm. and so they're already they've already taken steps for when that oil field starts to really decline so that's sort of a, a good example of thinking ahead
0: yeah yeah. Interesting. Well, and it sounds like, too, I mean, you mentioned you kind of got started um, through your work at EMBA, working on these 30 different bills um, that were moving through, I guess, through legislatures, various you know, state and uh, federal legislature. Okay. Well, so were you doing lobbying or was it primarily um, like public land solutions? Sounds like that's more set up to help people plan more than necessarily do lobbying, like, you know, getting involved in the politics.
1: Sure. We, we do get involved in the politics because we work from the ground up directly with the communities. And then from the top down on laws and legislation that affect the community's ability to make this transition.
2: Mm.
1: So for example, you to County, Utah, um, they have, it's a giant oil field and, but they want to transition to trails but one of their problems is they have bad air quality because the methane from all the well pads is spewing all over the place. Oh, wow. And so the Obama administration created a methane rule that required the operators to collect the methane. And then the Trump administration overturned it. And now it's going to go back to the Senate and get another vote. Mm-hmm. And we're going to be lobbying hard for that, for that vote to go the right way because it's really difficult to promote a recreation economy in a place with bad air quality. Turns out you don't want to ride your bike in a place like that.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: So, so we will, we will get involved in the legislative part of it.
0: Okay. Yeah. So, so is that part of what makes the, the public land solutions approach different from other groups or like, what what does make it it different in terms of your approach to land access and trail building?
1: Sure. Well, we, we work for the whole recreation economy. So when we go into an area, the first thing we do is a recreation audit. So we look at what's, a, what people are doing there now, what people could be doing there in the future,
2: mm.
1: what's, what's being well managed, what's overcrowded, um, where there's other opportunities. And so for example, in Emory County, Utah, next to Moab, there's a real opportunity to build more trails in the San Rafael swell. Mm-hmm. And so we, we, we help them really figure out where the best place to build those trails will be. So we sort of build the political capital to, to, um, to, to go forward with investing in recreation assets like trails. So what we, when we finish a project, it's generally, we, our goal is to create a community supported proposal. For recreation. Okay. And by doing that, we get rid of we we work through the various conflicts because the land managers just don't have the capacity to do that. So if you go to your neighborhood forest service or Bureau of Land Management or even state and you say, We want trails, and they say, Oh, we've got these wildlife people who don't want trails, or we've got (laughs) this oil oil and gas people who want to, you know, if there's a conflict you end up sort of in gridlock. Mm -hmm. And really what PLS does is we work through the gridlock and get to the point where we figured out who should do what, where on the land. And in that way, we're optimizing the recreation opportunity.
0: Right. Wow. I mean, it sounds like a huge job. It's, it's got to be really time consuming from start to finish, because it sounds like you have these multiple interests. You are trying to build consensus or something close to that with community members. And then then there's the plan itself and then they're selling the plan. I mean, what what's like the timeline look for one of these?
1: <laughs> we have a really great team. And I, I, Jason, and I was, we're doing it all ourselves now, that we have um, several folks helping us, which is great. And, but um, normally we can do it in about six months because wow. we, we've learned a lot and we know what to look for. And the hardest part is the stakeholder part. We we could look at the land use plan for an area and look at the, you know, visit the place and drive around and figure out who's doing what, where, and do all that and just write a plan. But it won't ever get implemented unless the locals are invested. And that's where the stakeholder part is really important. So, whether it's ranchers or equestrians or, you know, the motorized community or whoever you have to really figure out who's there, what they want and what's the, what's the optimal product mix. For example, over in Emory County in green river, they built, they built about 10 miles of trails. I don't know, six, eight years ago. It's just not enough. It's not critical mass, right? Like you're not going, maybe you'd stop there and ride on your way from salt Lake to Moab, but, to get people to really stay in Emory County and spend money, we need more bike trails. You have to get to critical mass. So yeah. we look at each activity, whether it's river running or whatever it is, and say, okay, what is this? How do we make this a bucket list? I don't really like that phrase, but everyone uses it. it makes <laughs> sense, really. How do we make this a bucket list place for this user group? Yeah. Because if you've got that, then that's going to bring enough people to actually bring a revenue flow to that community.
0: Yeah, interesting. Well, what are some of the places I'm curious now that, you, that you've looked at and you think, wow, that could really be the next big destination or the places, the communities who are like most enthusiastic about this that you've worked with?
1: Well, one story is Farmington, New Mexico, and Farmington, New Mexico has a couple coal fired power plants. It's right the reservation, the Navajo reservation borders that it you know comes into that county. And the mayor is Republican and but And it's a really red part of New Mexico,
2: mm-hmm.
1: but they are smart and they get it that the coal-fired power plants are closing on a date certain. One of them is already closed mm-hmm. and the um, oil and gas is not going to make up the difference. Mm. And they're really looking hard at all the ways that they can keep their community going. And one piece of it is motorized recreation because they have – a BLM open area right next to town called the Glade.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So that really, and and they hired a marketing firm that that their tagline is "Jolt Your Journey." And so they really are ready for side by side visitation. The you know those ATVs that are um, really popular right now. And one of their problems is every all these Western communities have lots of roads, open roads all over the place. But they're just spaghetti bowls. They aren't really, you know, locals know how to get home for dinner, but the visitors don't, right? <laughs> right. And uh, so we're looking at things like getting someone like Ken Block, the the famous moto guy, to um, to design a route that that then Farmington could brag about, right? Right. Yeah. Like Tom Rod. It's kind of like golf courses, maybe. Yeah. So that's one story. But in, in other places like Natarita, Colorado, they're all about single track. They're about to build – a whole bunch of single track. And that that's just kind of outside of Telluride and um, lower than Telluride and not quite like much easier to ride <laughs> because it's not quite so high. More air. Yeah, a lot more air <laughs> and, um, <laughs> and clean air and beautiful views of the mountains all around. And so that's a place where, but their challenge was they had gotten sort of sideways with the wildlife people and and their negotiations had stopped. And what we did is is really get into the details of, okay, why do you want to build trail here? And what is the problem with wildlife? And there was this whole area where they'd done all this elk habitat re- restoration. And if we put trails there, it might put the elk, force the elk back onto the rancher's land. And so we were disrupting this kind of compromise that had been worked out between the elk people and the ranch people mm-hmm. by saying, okay, you know what? We don't need a trail over here because it turns out we've got 30,000 acres on the other side of town. So let's get busy there kind of thing. Hmm.
0: Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like a lot of what you do and what you're able to bring is the ability to, I don't want to say mediate, but you can help communities like navigate and negotiate and and figure out who all the stakeholders are. I mean, on your website, it says that you guys are working to create viable plans that maximize recreation assets in conjunction with resource extraction and conservation goals. So is, is that like the biggest challenge that that these communities face is like, how do we do both of these things or how do we like find the right balance between them?
1: Sure. I mean, it definitely is all about balance. And I mean, on the resource extraction side, you know, oil and gas is definitely in a decline. So there's less pressure coming from that than there was even just five years ago. Mm -hmm. But, you know, we're going to need a lot of lithium going forward. So we sort of expect to try to figure out how to, how to make that work. Um, and then on the conservation side, um, to, to save the planet, we're going to have to keep some ecosystems intact. Mm-hmm. And that's going to be more and more important. And whether that means there are not that many places really that still qualify for wilderness, but there are other levels of conservation um, and protection that we really want to support because ultimately you, you don't want to ride your bike um, next to a lithium mine <laughs> or, or a oil and gas. Well, so that looking at how do you, um, how do you maximize and optimize those things? It, it's, it's, a it's easier than you think. Yes, it takes a lot of time and a lot of work, but you know, if you've got a trail on one ridgetop, you don't need a trail on the next ridgetop over. And, and in fact, you want that other ridgetop, the view shed of the trail to be protected.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: Um, So, you know, stacked loops are really important and they're what's driving economic development. These big trails that go point to point don't provide as much value. Sure, they're important and they're important aspirationally and and we need those, but we don't need them everywhere. Um, We need stacked loops pretty much everywhere. I mean, every town is wanting a stacked loop. Now it's pretty amazing that this trend towards trails being sort of a mainstream thing. Like if you're the mayor of a small town, you used to be in charge of stoplights and police and fire. Right. Mm -hmm. And now you're in charge of stoplights, police, fire, and trails. Like that's what we're seeing in more and more communities. The mayor cares about the trails and that bodes really well for mountain biking.
0: Yeah. That That is a big shift for sure. And, you know, yeah, you're talking about the value of trails and even the relative value of a certain trail configuration, for lack of a better word. When you're looking at the value of these sort of recreational assets, is this – considered strictly in monetary terms? Or how do you also account for like the intrinsic values, like just the beauty of nature or, you know, even even wildlife? I mean, it's hard to put a dollar amount on that. So how do you kind of talk about those values?
1: Sure. You know, it really translates into the brand of the place more than a monetary number. Like there are some economists that work on this and, and come up with these dollar amounts. And Sure, it's important to understand, but when a community really pivots and starts making money from transient room tax, which is hotel tax, and um, local small businesses are thriving, you know that you're winning. And all of those people, the small businesses, the accountants, even the dental hygienists in the town know that the reason people are there is because of the recreation asset, whether it's the river, the climbing, the trails, whatever, it, it's it's pretty clear what's driving either um, both business investment in the town and visitation. So, so a lot of it t- comes at, back to the brand of the place. Hmm. So as a business, part of your brand is your address, right? And so if you're, if the mission of the town where you live matches the mission of the brand, one, one good example is Osprey. Osprey's in Cortez, Colorado. And that definitely that helps them in so many ways. One, it puts them next to public lands where people use their packs. And like Osprey is one of the places where you could get an entry level job at Osprey and still buy a house in Cortez.
2: Hmm. Yeah.
1: So, so it kind of, it's, it's not so much just some one number, even though those studies and the work being done to value these things is important. It's more about the strategy and, and, you know, one place where that's the example is really Um, cranking is Bentonville. Right. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, I think there was probably a moment when Walmart was maybe thinking about moving the headquarters to Dallas because they couldn't recruit executives to Northwest Arkansas. And then, you know, Tom and Stewart came along and said, let's build some trails. And now that's one of the coolest places to be.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's certainly a, a really powerful case study um, like you said, the the communities now have their eyes open to this and say, well, I mean, if, if a place like Bentonville can do it and kind of change that narrative, then yeah, anywhere could do it really. And, and it works.
1: Yeah. And we're seeing that there's a big project, um, into it has made a big investment in West Virginia at the West Virginia university on, you know, every place has to do it differently. And obviously the Walton family foundation, um, is unique and and really amazing, but we're seeing that there are other corporate entities that are looking to follow their example. So, and all of this is like great news for mountain biking.
0: Yeah, definitely. Yeah, we're all benefiting, you know, whether you you live in one of these towns or you visit them, which I think is interesting because like you said, Walmart and Bentonville was kind of designed to get people to live there. But yeah, so many of us now see it as like, that's a tourist destination, not just somewhere to live.
1: Exactly, and and the two things do go hand in hand. When you provide those quality outdoor experiences, you're going to recruit both businesses, entrepreneurs, professionals who can live wherever they want, and visitors. And you know it's important to manage the visitors. That's a whole other problem. But um, but but if you set it up correctly from the beginning, like when you think about the way recreation communities evolved over time, most of them were pretty haphazard, like Moab. You know the original mountain biking rides the the rides in moab were all were all old uranium roads huh. wow yeah and so people came here to ride and it was cool but then we realized we had to build some single track and we were able to you know work with the bureau of land management and get a program for to build 150 miles of of single track in grand county and we did it like over time we just worked our way through that list. And that's really um, what kept Moab on the map. Because there for a minute, Fruta was kind of eating our lunch because Troy Rare built too many trails over there for a second. He was ahead of us on the single track.
0: Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's hard to believe that. Yeah. I mean, Moab, everybody just assumes like, you know, it just... Kind of happened or whatever, but it sounds like it is very strategic and and that's what your your group does. I mean, it's this takes a lot of planning and a lot of forethought and strategy, and and it doesn't just happen overnight.
1: Right. It, it, I mean, it, it, it will happen organically in places, but it'll take forever. So what we're trying to do is accelerate that process.
0: Yeah. Interesting. Well, you've mentioned a number of examples of places that are doing this and communities where public land solutions has worked. Can you walk us through a successful project with the local community and kind of talk to us about how you identify recreational assets and then what the plan looks like based on uh, identifying those assets?
1: Well, sure. Uh, I'll go back to Emory County, Utah, because um, that's one we're right in the middle of. Mm -hmm. and it's, it's a big public land community. Like I'm going to say 80, 90% of, of Emory County is public land. Oh, wow. And that's a huge deal. Right. And public land, you know, many communities in the West struggle with their federal land ownership, because if you think about it, if you were in Emory County 150 years ago and your family survived, you know, kind of by definition, you're a badass. Like you're, you know, you're very self reliant, right? Yeah. And for most of those people, making a living off the land by either ranching or mining or something was the most honest way to make a living. And anything else was a little bit snake oil, right?
2: Hmm. Hmm.
0: Yeah.
1: So when you ask these people to look at tourism, they're like, I don't want to be in the service industry. I like making, a, I'm growing beef here, you know? Right. But, what we're seeing now is that, first of all, it turns out the service industry is a fine way to make a living. Sharing these federal lands with visitors is a great way to make a living, and it's a great way to attract businesses. Like it, it used to be that the best way to make a living for your family was to own land. But today, some of the wealthiest people in our society didn't get there by land ownership. There's a million other ways to make a living. Right. And it turns out that communities with shared public land, like Emory County, Are on track to prosper because precisely because the federal government owns the land.
0: Hmm. Interesting.
1: It's a big pivot. But the folks in Emory County see see this opportunity and they have they're really working to welcome climbers, mountain bikers, jeepers, hunters horseback mule trains
2: Mm -hmm. yeah
1: i went to one meeting and i thought they were making jokes about mules i was like all right we probably won't spend too much time on the mules they're like no no we what we need to talk about the mules (laughs) (laughs) sorry whoops so what what we're doing there is first you you look at first you do sort of the big sort of internet search and look at the crowd sourced data that's out there about who's doing what mm-hmm. but then you spend a lot of time with the locals to figure out what they're interested in and what they want to do because everywhere wants to keep their own authentic characteristic kind of thing
0: right and yeah
1: you know a lot of places you know moab has made a lot of mistakes and we're working hard to fix them but but so learning from the from the things that moab didn't do right like planning where your overnight rental should be. Should every neighborhood be allowed to be used for Airbnb? Um, Should, you know, is it unlimited number of hotels or should we look at the sewer system a little more closely? (laughs) Right. You know, there's just a lot of things that you can do better. So But Emory County is on track to be a destination for all these activities, including mountain biking, because they have so much public land. And they had some wilderness study areas, which, you know, are created by Congress and they're kind of in a holding pattern. Right. Mm -hmm. And now they've decided what is going to be wilderness and what is going to be recreation. And it worked. It's going to be great because there are going to be all these trails and opportunities that are surrounded by really pristine land. And then there's going to be places where it's going to be a little louder because there's going to be more motorized recreation, but they have a big enough space to provide world-class opportunities really for everyone. Mm. And um, so right now we're just um, sort of finishing up the different proposals and we'll be presenting that to the stakeholders, to all the people that have helped us build the plan. And then we'll be going to the BLM and saying, okay, we think you should start here. We're really prioritizing um, which projects can be done soonest mm-hmm. and helping them look for funding for those projects, uh, which is the next step. So once you figured out what you want and you can, and it's, and you can do it through the planning process. So it's legal critical point there, because this is one of our problems, you know, it turns out there's no right to do anything on the public land. There's no right to ride your bike. There's no right to mine. Huh. Yeah. You know, what there is, is a big complicated list of laws that that have laid out the process for deciding what we're going to do where Hmm. so you got to understand those laws and once you get those you can work within that system and uh build some trail
0: yeah wow well and again it just comes back to it sounds like there's a lot to be done and and your group brings a ton of expertise that obviously has a lot of value to communities. So how does your funding work? Is this something that the communities pay for or is the outdoor industry sort of helping foot the bill or or what what does funding look like for the public land solutions?
1: Well, I just want to, before I go to that, uh, um, I do want to say that there are tons of trail groups Trails two thousand, evergreen, various emba chapters all over the place that are navigating this without our help they they're they've they've managed to figure out ways to work with their local land managers and get into the planning process and get trails built mm-hmm. so we're really helping the places that are we're following and you know all the famous bike destinations that you know about today. Are winning and doing it on their own, right? Mm-hmm. In fact, a county commissioner one time asked me, "Well, did PLS do Fruita?" And I said, "No. <laughs> <laughs> I would have had to be working on that when I was twelve or whatever. Not quite said that bad, but um, but we saw what happened in Fruita, and we learned from Fruita, and we're bringing some of the things that Fruita did to your community. So. We are blessed, at, really, it's incredible how many really positive and proactive trail groups there are in the U.S. right now who are on deck to build more trails. So so we're helping the places that are more rural and more remote and, and adding because it's really expensive to buy a house in Bend, Oregon right now, or even Moab, but Natarita and Emory County, there's going to be availability.
0: Yeah. Well, is it safe to say then maybe one of the differences between PLS and, you know, Evergreen or some of these established bike groups is that one, you're kind of going into the destinations where maybe there aren't any bikers or there, there isn't definitely isn't a critical mass yet. So these are kind of off the radar spots. And then also that you're not advocating a particular form of recreation. Um, you're looking at kind of all the possibilities. Is, are those kind of the key differences?
1: Yeah, definitely. I mean, there are all these groups like Imba and Evergreen. There are whitewater groups, there are hiking groups, there are climbing groups, uh, local and, nas- and national ones. Mm-hmm. And all those people play a really important role. And we're just we're mostly focused on economic development and how the public land in your community can be used for economic development. Mm-hmm. And that's why we have to really look at the whole product mix, like not everywhere. You don't want to turn everywhere into Moab or Durango or Jackson, you you know, like you have to really look at what's there and what what is the what is the character and brand of that place Hmm. um, and how does it make it unique and different from everywhere else kind of thing. Yeah. But back to the funding question, PLS does get paid by the communities. We get hired by either the county or the city, but we also have some foundation grants from foundations that are interested in climate. And transition, and helping communities who were, uh, you know, initially dependent on resource extraction, move towards something more sustainable. Mm. So those are our really big two sources of funding, and we've been we've done a lot of work on oil and gas reform. So which has been really crazy. We even had some big successes protecting the Slick Rock Trail and another area north of Canyonlands from oil and gas leasing during the Trump administration. yeah, And the way we did that was by pointing out that the real economic opportunity for these places was not oil and gas, it was recreation.
0: Yeah, I remember when that news came out and it it almost, it sounded unbelievable that that was even something that was being talked about, but it just goes to show that there are these competing interests and some of them can be pretty powerful.
1: Well, and historically the rules... The the laws that that bucket of laws, they the, the laws favor resource extraction. Hmm. I mean, we're working with the 1872 Mining Act and the 1920 Mineral Leasing Act. Mm-hmm. And what's <laughs> so great about what the Biden administration is doing right now is they're like, it is time to update the system. Yeah. And that is a huge benefit to the cycling community because. Otherwise, competition for acreage, I mean, the public lands are not infinite. I know they felt that way back in the (laughs) 1700s, but they are not infinite. And we know exactly how much is out there and we know where the oil is now. And we, you know, there's a lot, we know so much more than we used to. And so it's time Mm -hmm. for these laws to be updated and for these new uses like recreation to get a much higher profile and, and get much more consideration as opposed to being this kind of stepchild, which technically we are right now. I mean, even at Western Spirit on our, for example, on the Pelle trail, that trail crosses lands that are leased for oil and gas. And even though we have a permit there and take people there, Technically, technically, the BLM doesn't even really have a, an obligation to tell us that they have given permission for somebody to drill on one of those leases. Oh wow! So literally, we could like ride up and find a really big truck, <laughs> you know, a whole little city yeah. was suddenly drilling. And so, it's really important that we that we do the work to change some of these laws to to reflect today's needs Mm -hmm. and today's economic opportunities as opposed to sort of forcing the leasing. And that's why we were able to win on those leases, because even the Republican folks that we were working with, they saw the economic value of recreation and the fact that oil and gas was simply not going to deliver the revenue flows.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because it's like, obviously, you are speaking the same language now, you know, in the past, like you, you're talking about economic benefits to recreation. Whereas before that wasn't, that wasn't even part of the conversation. It was like one side's talking about economic and the other is talking about, we just want, we just want nice places.
1: Or, or conservation. Like it's the right thing to do, we should protect the land because it's the right thing to do. Yeah. Which it is actually, but it was really hard to win that argument when people needed dinner You know, I mean, when when you're trying to say stop making a living off this because it's the right thing to do, that's really hard to win. But if we say, yeah, here's a new way to make a living and it's not going to be perfect. Like no oil and gas workers really want to jump right into mountain biking. But (laughs) right. But there are things happening that are, you know, other industries like ziplining, a bunch of oil and gas engineers are started a zipline company. Uh, Yeah. And uh, so there's there are. um, you know, it's not a perfect one-to-one transition, but you'd certainly rather your town be transitioning so that your house maintains its value, even if it means you might have to get a job different from what you've been doing.
0: Right. Yeah. Yeah. And those transitions can be difficult and people are resistant to change and and that's certainly going to be part of it. But yeah, I I think as long as everybody's talking the same language in terms of like, what's our ultimate goal here? Seems like that's, that's a good way to make progress. Exactly. Well, we're talking about funding and how PLS works with communities to help identify grants and things. One of the big sources of funding, at least to my understanding, is the Land and Water Conservation Fund. How significant is that one in terms of recreation project funding in the U.S.? Huge, for a bunch of
1: reasons. So the Land and Water Conservation Fund is offshore oil and gas royalties that are made available to basically build trail and and buy land like buy strategic parcels that allow you access to federal land so hmm. you've got a whole bunch of private land that's blocking the entrance to the national forest, you need somewhere to get in there or if you've got private inholdings in the forest or or other pieces of land even even just straight up private that are making it impossible to complete the trail system, that kind of thing. And okay. so it's a program that was set up in the sixties originally. And then it, it was to expire. It expired. Like it was going to die. And so all of the conservation organizations and a lot of the outdoor industry, you know, bike was involved, but, but we really could be involved a lot more, but, but it was a long-term a project. I think I lobbied for LWCF for 10 years. I must have done wow. 30 DC trips on LWCF, <laughs> like like a ridiculous amount. And so it was a huge thing for it to pass. And there's a lot of reasons why it passed, because it's interesting why it passed. There were two senators, one from Colorado and one from Montana, who knew that they needed to support this mm-hmm. or they would not get reelected. and Let's see. One of them didn't get reelected anyway, but that's why the Trump administration decided to support it because they they were trying to keep their Senate majority. So it's a good story about how you need to understand how the politics works. If you want to win in a democracy, Mm -hmm. we make rules by committee and the committee is huge. It's all of us. And it's very complicated. But if you once you learn how it works, it's it's you know, it is it is the best. It's like um. Churchill said democracy is the worst form of government except for all the others. So it's, it's very messy and not linear and sometimes not even rational, but, but it is the best way to decide. So anyway, so we got land and water conservation passed, but then immediately there were some glitches in the way the Department of Interior was interpreting some things. And, um, those are being sorted out now. And basically it's going to allow for more recreation assets of all types. Cause it also includes sort of like baseball fields and, um, uh, other, other pieces. Um, but it's great for the bike industry. And the other important thing to know is that all the efforts that went into lobbying for LWCF, those, we don't have to do that anymore. For a minute I thought my son was going to have to lobby for LWCF. It was going to be a lifetime thing, but now that we're done with it, all of that effort right now is going towards climate.
2: Mm.
1: And so it's really important to understand how that's changing um, the dynamics in D.C. We, we affectionately call it the mosh pit.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> and the mosh pit is all the different groups that PLS works with to get these things done and all the different groups that worked on LWCF. And the way the mosh pit works is you have to put your hands up and let help somebody if they're being passed over. Right. And So that when you get passed over, they're going to do it for you. It's really that whole like working together thing. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's a really important thing to understand about getting things done in D.C. You have to be willing to do things that maybe aren't directly your mission. Um, And uh, like, you know, if you're a bike group working on clean air may not seem like directly your mission, but it does turn out you need clean air to ride a bike.
0: Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it is cool to see how, um, trail groups are finding. I mean, in some cases it's like creative funding, right? There's money that is earmarked for clean air or clean water and you're able to kind of justify your projects because it also kind of fits with this other thing. And it it sounds like a lot of this is just about compromise and it's not, it's not as easy as just saying like, nope, we've got our thing and we're not going to budge on it. I mean, you have to, you have to do some give and take there. Um, in order to actually make things happen.
1: Yeah, it's super important because I, I blame this guy. I think his name was Michael Porter, but he was the one who said, you have to have a vision for your organization and a mission and you can't stray off of it. And now we're all painted into these corners and <laughs> and and we can't talk to each other. And, and there was a moment when I went to EMBA and said, hey, you know, we should support this clean air initiative. And they were like, mm, everyone who gave us money for MBA just gave it to, money, to us to work on trails.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: And I kind of was like, Oh, okay. And now I'm like, what, why did I say okay to that? You know? Like, <laughs> yeah. And in fact, you know, that's one of our problems The in the bike world. We own the 18 inches of dirt. We are the trail experts of the world. I mean, mm-hmm. that is, we are undisputed experts on trail building, but it's time to lift up our heads and look around at all the public land around that 18 inches of the trail itself mm-hmm. And become more of a player in the bigger public lands conversation yeah um, and that's the real opportunity and and everybody wants trails, but to get trails you you, you have to <laughs> you have to have public land ownership, and it has to be you know the community has to decide that the highest and best use of that public land is a trail system, so it's not just about berms we gotta get beyond the berms,
0: yeah. Well in addition to interacting with government land managers your team also works with energy development companies for land access. What does that look like and it, how big of an opportunity is this if you are able to work with them?
1: Well, we ha- yes, the the energy development is and, and other types of resource extraction like lithium or or what's going to happen next is really important and because that is we're going to need the lithium like Every, just like we needed the oil and the gas and the coal when we first started doing that. And our problem was that we didn't realize the unintended consequences, right? It's like pulling something out of the ground and it's making everyone's life better. Like we're not freezing or in the dark, right?
2: Mm -hmm. And
1: that was serious progress, but it turns out that there are these unintended consequences of using oil and gas that now we have to mitigate, right?
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah.
1: And so as we go forward, looking at this is a totally idealized vision, but it's got to have a dream, right? Yeah. So if you start looking at, well, what's it going to take to lithium mine lithium? How what's that going to look like? And can we plan for the restoration of a lithium mine to turn it into trails? Like we're like, what's going to happen on all these well pads and oil and gas areas? And there's aerial pictures you can see that are truly amazing because it's as far as you can see for hundreds of miles well pads. Oh wow! And yeah, and so restoring that landscape and using it for trails is possible, but um, it's going to take a concerted effort. And so it it used to be when you started a resource extraction project, you were like, "Woohoo! We're all getting rich, and we're just going to get this mineral out of the ground and silver, gold, whatever it was," and uh, and nobody had to think about what happens when it's over. Right. What happens when it's you know, and what happens to the byproducts like the fracking water and the the other the you know the road cuts and the um, other challenges that you know come with resource extraction. So the opportunity is to work with the energy companies going forward, or work with any resource extraction like wind and solar. Right. How mm-hmm. how do we if we need to run a trail right through a solar installation um, that that could either be an opportunity to see how the solar installation works, or maybe we have to go around it or, um, you know, so there's going to be, it's just the main point is that we have to acknowledge that there are many, many other uses of public lands that come way ahead of mountain biking.
0: Mm -hmm. Right.
1: But if we are a player in the conversation about public lands, then we will have a much better chance of, of, getting more trails. Um but if you're just if you don't see the bigger picture and all you are is sort of we want trails narrow-minded focused like a laser on getting trails you're 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 not going to get as many that way. That strategy just doesn't work because these public lands belong to all Americans and we have a whole bunch of needs that will be met by the public lands and if we don't s- understand our role in that picture that's a problem.
0: Yeah, that's really fascinating too to think about I mean, now you're talking like super long-term planning as well, you know, like this lithium mine, it doesn't even exist yet, but we're already hopefully thinking about like, well, this would be a sweet trail after they're done mining the lithium and, you know, we're ready to like put everything kind of back together again and thinking about that. What does it look like? Like that's a, that's a really long-term vision. Um, And, it and understandably, that's not something people have thought about in the past. Um, So it's awesome that, that we are thinking about it now and we've kind of learned lessons from past, uh, you know, resource extraction.
1: Exactly. That's, that's, so that's why it's so important for us to be in the conversation and be real, really like mountain biking has a choice. We can either be a little niche, self-interested group that all we want is our trails, or we can be a player in the public lands conversation. And we've really been gifted this awesome piece because we are so much a part of the economic development story.
2: Mm, yeah.
1: And so building on that and, and taking our trail expertise to the next level and becoming real public land players is a huge opportunity and it's going to give us a much better chance of uh Keeping you know we estimate there's over a hundred thousand miles of ready to ride trail in the u s right now, and wow, and we're poised to build another hundred thousand but but to be there and do that we we have to be bigger than a self interested we just want to ride our bikes kind of group we got to be players we got to help with the clean air, we got to help with clean water, we have to help with climate change, and if we're helping if if we're helping with climate change we that's that's a good place to be.
0: Yeah. Well, one of the questions that comes to mind and this kind of ties into the the next one that I had planned to ask, but like how do other outside groups see mountain bikers? Like are there ways that we can improve kind of I guess the way we're seen by other groups in in terms of being champions of the environment and conservation or are there other strategies we could use to to get us more access to to lands and and to have these communities trust mountain bikers more.
1: Sure. So um now we're going to get to wilderness here in a second, but um it is um well let's just go to wilderness. You ready?
0: <laughs> yeah, let's do it. Yeah, what is the PLS stance on wilderness access for mountain bikes?
1: We do not believe mountain bikes should be in wilderness. And uh neither does IMBA and mm-hmm. Unfortunately, there's been a lot of misunderstanding about that, but, but when you ask yourself as a mountain biker, whether you think a bike should be allowed in wilderness, you need to do two calculations. And the first one involves mileage. So let's look at how many miles of trail there are, there is in wilderness or, or that's kind of affected by wilderness right now.
2: Mm -hmm. Okay.
1: And. If anyone in the whole bike industry would benefit financially from access to wilderness, it would be me. My day job (laughs) is to take people on backcountry trips um, in remote locations, right? And so when I do that calculation, I see the hundred thousand miles of ready to ride trail in the US right now, and I see about a thousand miles, maybe, of wilderness. And even may, maybe fifteen hundred, if you stretch it to some really unlikely wilderness bills that might someday happen, but are super unlikely, right?
0: Yeah. Wow. So that's yeah, that's incredibly small. I mean, is that right? And and these are trails that I guess are, exist for hiking. I mean, is most of wilderness then just no trail, nothing? I mean, it's just land. Is that kind of the status?
1: No, no, there there are historic trails through a lot of these lands, but they are mostly point to point trails. So, mm-hmm. you know, there's some places in Montana that uh, Montana is a lot of basin and range. So relatively small mountain ranges and then big basins in almost every range, there's a trail that goes through that range. Right. And that was created, oh, uh, you know, a long time ago. Mm-hmm. And. Some of them have some good riding on them, and some of them have three 45 minute hike a bikes and a four hour car shuttle to get back to your car. You know, <laughs> right? So, and the number of people that can really do that is pretty darn small. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I'm not saying that some of those trails we want to keep and they make great aspirational big deal rides, but mm-hmm. are they economic drivers? Not really. Not enough people can do them and they don't concentrate use in a certain town. They spread it out too much over, you know, there's a lot of reasons why this don't work. But the main point is you need to make a decision. Are you going to the map for that 1,000 miles? Do you think that we should use all our resources to try to join Senator Lee in his um, effort to get bikes in wilderness that, that, you know, the Sustainable Trails Coalition pushed? Or are you more interested in the hundreds of thousands of other miles that we can build?
0: Is is this then, I mean, to tie back to the the previous question, I mean, is this affecting then sort of the groups that we work with that, that it actually is hurting us by supporting bikes in wilderness?
1: Right. So that's the second calculation that you have to make. And that is Senator Bennett from Colorado put it best. There's only two kinds of people on the planet right now. People working to fix climate change and people in the way. So which one do you want to be? And if you decide that you really want to ride your bike in that 1000 miles of wilderness, then you're going to be one of those people in the way. (laughs) Because Mm -hmm. the Wilderness Act is the founding legislation for the modern environmental movement. And because in the bringing it to the Biden administration, they're working on this 30 by 30 initiative protecting 30% of the public of, of land by the year 2030.
0: Hmm, Okay.
1: That's a good thing for mountain bikers. The more green space there is, the more places there will be to ride. So you shouldn't Mm -hmm. think that the word protection means um, no access by protection. They mean that we're just not going to drill it or dig it up or otherwise poison it. Yeah. So Land in its natural state is a good thing for for mountain bikers, but you can't really be. You, if you want bikes in wilderness, you're not for thirty by thirty, and you're on the wrong side of a whole bunch of conservation organizations that have a whole bunch more members than we do mountain bikers. Yeah. So, answer to the question of you support bikes in wilderness, really, you need to do the math before you before you just sort of off the hip say. Well, horses get to go? We should be able to go. Kind of thing.
0: <laughs> right. Well, yeah, that's what I was going to ask you is about the math. I mean, so we're talking, you know, potentially bikes, you know, could get access to a thousand, fifteen hundred miles of trails. How many more miles of trails? I mean, you mentioned a hundred thousand, potentially a hundred thousand more miles of trails that could be, you know, either created or, or, you know, open to access for bikes. I mean, is that is that the calculation? Is that correct? Or,
1: well, we're actually working on a project to get a better number, but I can just tell you that so many communities want to build trails; like it's off the charts. It, it really has. It, it goes back to that: our mountain bikers going to be a little self interested niche, or are we part of the mainstream? And what we're seeing is that all these communities that want trails puts us in the mainstream. But the way we could really mess it up is, you know, supporting a bikes in wilderness is there's no choice, but the environmental community is going to say no to that, because here's what that is. Senator Lee, my senator, doesn't believe in public lands. He's old school Utah. He believes the federal land is prohibiting the people from of Utah from generating more wealth. Mm. He needs to get to the 21st century and understand that Adobe and Goldman Sachs that are located in Salt Lake City came here because of the federal land, because of the shared public land. Mm-hmm. So his the reason he's supporting bikes in wilderness is to use mountain bikers. We're not even a stick to beat the wilderness community over the head <laughs> with the environmental yeah. We're like a little pin to poke the wilderness community in the eye. And that's what Mike Lee is using us for. And there's some mountain bikers who are still like, I don't care. A bike doesn't hurt the land. The horses get to go. I'm for bikes in wilderness. And my, you know, my point is just, you need to do these other calculations and understand that if your local Sierra club is against a trail expansion in your local national forest, because they're mad at you for being bike for bikes in wilderness, you are going to lose trail opportunities.
0: (laughs) Right. Yeah. It's interesting. I mean, we see this even – I've seen it at the local level, um, even in, in urban areas where, you know, in the past, it was really hard to get bike trails built or, you know, just trail trails that bikes had access to. And in talking to people, sounds like that's kind of flipped, like you're saying, that communities – even urban communities and areas are saying we want trails and they're coming to the bikers and asking, you know, how do we get these built? Can you build trails for us? And I think some of us are stuck in the old mindset of it's really hard to make trails. Nobody wants them. We, we have to beg to get these trails built. And so we need to, you know, claw and grab at every little thing we can get. Whereas, that's that's not really the environment anymore. I mean, I think it was at one time, but things have changed.
1: Right. And so well, think about that for a minute. There's there's also two choices. As a mountain bike advocate, you have two choices. Are you going to be a fighter or a lover, right? <laughs> and right. The, fighter, the fighter path just doesn't work. I mean, the, you have no right to ride, like demanding your rights and going into a meeting and say, I'm here to keep the trails open for mountain bikers. Everyone looks at you like, great. You know,
0: (laughs) what about the rest of us? You don't care about us. Right.
1: If you go to meetings and you say, okay, what are the bigger problems here? How can the mountain bike community prove the value of our constituency? How can we help with the other problems? And once you're doing that, if you're helping with clean air, if you're helping with opening trails that maybe you don't get to ride, or um, if you're helping uh, with climate issues, or supporting things that don't directly affect mountain biking, you become part of the mosh pit. You become a player in the overall conversation and people want you to help as opposed to you're just one more person screaming at your local elected official or your local land manager demanding what you want. Like you, so you're either a pain in the ass or you're part of the solution. And I mean, I'll give you an example, another example you know, in San Diego, everyone's healthy and everyone wants to get outside. Right. And there are all, and there's a lot of pressure on the trails. And, you know, even though the mountain bikers have built some trails on County land and have been really working hard to be a player in the community, you know, they're definitely demanding access to some places. And that attitude is going to get them into trouble because at some point the county commissioners are going to wake up one day and go, Hmm, we have more constituents with feet than who own bicycles and they want to go hiking. And so we don't care who built the trail. We're, we're in charge of these lands and we're going to close the trail to mountain biking. So how do you prevent that? You prevent that by being, by being part of the solution instead of just making demands and being a fighter. So the fighting just doesn't work. Right.
0: I mean that approach is kind of the old approach. Yeah, whoever's the loudest kind of wins. But you know, if we're honest, if we look at the other side and say, "Well, you know, they only won because they were the loudest," we're going to be pretty upset about that and and feel like it's not right. So we have to kind of look at it from both sides.
1: Well, I I would argue that the loudest almost never wins. It's not about it's not about loudest. It, it's it's about most cooperative, because when any kind of land decision requires a bunch of stakeholders to support it and so we're always working to get everyone sort of 85% happy <laughs> and once they get to that point they know that the bill or the program or whatever it is is um is only they're only going to get the, the what happens is you get a little basket of benefits like we're going to get this new trail and we're going to get this and we're going to get that if this bill passes or if this program gets funded or whatever. And so if you demand too much and blow up the deal, then you get nothing.
0: <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Well, so how does your advocacy background? and your work with PLS inform and connect with the trip offerings that you do at Western spirit. I mean, it's gotta be, it's incredible that you're able to kind of do both of these and have your feet kind of in, in both sides. So, so how do they connect? What do you, how do you benefit from, from seeing this from both angles?
1: Well, I definitely, I have an amazing team at Western spirit and a really good team at PLS. So I don't, I'm not doing anything by myself. In fact, I'm kind of done lifting coolers in general. Um, save save my back for riding but i learned so much from western spirit because we were looking at trails and developing new trips my husband mark and i at the beginning we had a lot of customers who'd been on one or two trips and wanted to go on more so we were under a lot of pressure to develop new itineraries so we spent a long time camping and riding all over the place to put together five day trips and, um, we're still developing new trips. And, but what I learned from that, all that traveling was what was happening in these different communities. Like we saw what was happening in sun Valley and bend and Missoula and, you know, even St. George, Utah. So, so I wouldn't have been able to do the work at PLS if I hadn't done that work at Western spirit first. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So right now I, I am, mostly working on PLS because we have such an amazing team at Western Spirit. Um, Mm. But the two things are definitely related in that we, the the Western Spirit has allowed me to learn about how the recreation economy is truly, really working. Mm. And because we have so many permits um, on the public lands, I've also worked with, you know, dozens of land managers, and I see it from their side as well, all the challenges that they have. Mm -hmm. So it's pretty, um, sort of interrelated, but mercifully, I don't have to do the day-to-day on either project all the time by myself. (laughs) Like there's an amazing team of people working on all of this stuff.
0: Yeah, that's really cool. And yeah, now the question seems obvious now. I mean, that what you're doing um, in both is you have to work with all these different groups. You've got the the tourism component to it. You've got to work with the local communities uh, to support these trips. And then obviously the government agencies and and it's all it's all interrelated in your job I imagine at Western Spirit is is to keep people happy, right? I mean that's <laughs> you're you're kind of in the hospitality business. So oh, you're definitely. always there like mediating conflicts and making sure everybody's got what they want and what they need. And um that's seems to work well for public lands as well.
1: Yeah, I mean getting well the good thing about the Western Spirit trip is once you're out there in the backcountry, everyone is usually their best self. It brings out everyone's best, best sides. And for us, you know, we love it when all the guides call in on Friday afternoon and say, "I had a great group of people, and the truck is running perfectly." We're like, "Great, Don't have a beer." <laughs> yeah. So.
0: Yeah. What else is there?
1: Yeah. Exactly. That's awesome. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so, what are your goals for PLS and for Western Spirit this year, and and looking forward?
1: Well, um, Western spirits mission is to save the world through cycling. And, um, so
0: it's a big mission,
1: Yeah, exactly. But, but it does, like, we do see the change in the people, like they show up a little stressed out and pale Mm -hmm. and they come back (laughs) and they're basically glowing and it's not just the dirt or the sunburn. They really, they really have, um, gotten a chance to reconnect with, nature in themselves and just have sort of unstructured leisure time and not too much phone access. And, uh, uh, really just when you go for a week and you come back, you really feel like you've been gone like a month. (laughs) It's a really magic trick there to get away from everything. And so, um, and, and it does, you know, a lot of our folks are, not super enthusiast cyclists, you know, at least 50% are people who ride occasionally. So after their trip, they're, they're more devoted to cycling mm-hmm. and that's a good thing. And and keeping it in their lives, both for health and fitness and transportation. So
2: mm-hmm.
1: all of that is really happening. And, and, uh, and at, at public land solutions, our goals have to do with bringing outdoor access and recreation to the climate solution mm-hmm. and, That's happening. Like it's happening in all these communities that are realizing it's time to use their public lands in a new way. And it's still making a living off the land, but it's leaving the land in its natural state instead of having to kind of wreck it to get what you need kind of thing.
0: Right. Yeah. Yeah, that's awesome how you're able to to tie that into something that is such a huge part of the, you know, national, the global conversation and to make it more than just being about bikes, which can seem a little selfish sometimes and, and really opening it up. And, and it sounds like you're finding success with that, which is really awesome to hear.
1: Yeah. I mean, there's a ton to do and there's always little challenges, but, um, but, uh, <laughs> but it is exciting i mean bikes are part of the solution and the and the mountain bike community in particular has a really important role to play in honoring and supporting these communities that are in transition that are building trails for us to ride yeah so it's a it's a really exciting time but you do have to to look beyond your own self-interest and work on the bigger picture and um there's so much opportunity to do that that my hope is that uh, you know, all mountain bikers will start to, you know, see that opportunity and the industry too, which is, is starting to see that too, because the outdoor industry has kind of been ahead of us on this work. And mm-hmm. um, I think the bike community has a real opportunity to step up in the next few years and be part of the solution in all of these, in all of these ways. And there's a lot of great work being done in this, you know, people for bikes and other, other, and the work Emba's doing now, it's, it's starting to happen. But um, I think in general that, you know, every mountain biker needs to see this whole picture because we have such an opportunity, a great role to play.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for everything that you're doing and for taking the time to talk to us. I definitely learned a lot and I'm sure our listeners will as well. So thanks.
1: Well, thank you. Thank you for all your work and for being interested.
0: Well, you can learn more uh, about PLS at publiclandsolutions.org and also be sure to check out westernspirit.com for information about the trips and some of the things that they're doing. That's all we've got this week. We'll talk to you again next week.